Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hello and welcome to the Location Matters podcast by NGIS. My name is Sarah Butler. This week at Location Matters, we're celebrating International Women's Day. It's a great opportunity for everyone to recognise and show appreciation to the wonderful women in their lives, both personally and professionally. At NGIS, our work is centred around science, GIS in particular. In the industry, traditionally, the scales tip more to the male side when it comes to people trained and working in GIS. It's not intended as a criticism towards GIS industry, but it's just the way it is. At NGIS, though, we are really lucky to be surrounded by many wonderful women working in GIS and also have networks where we've met other great female leaders in this space. I'm delighted to welcome some of them here with us today. We are joined for this episode by Usha Johnston, who is a senior GIS analyst for NGIS and has been working for NGIS now for just over a year. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Usha. Thank you for being here. Um, we have Marinda Vansfather-Scott, who is a GIS analyst for Winyama. Winyama is an Indigenous-owned business that sits within the NGIS group. Thank you, Marinda, very much for being with us. Thank you, Sarah. And we also have Nat Raisbeck-Brown, and Nat is joining us today from CSIRO. And the connection, um, talking about networks and the way that these networks work, is because Nat and Marinda are actually working together at the moment on the Indigenous Mapping Workshop curriculum. So thank you, Nat, for being here. Thank you. Um, I want to get into the Indigenous Mapping Workshop a little bit later because I do think it's important that we talk about not just the importance of having females represented in the industry, but also just diversity in the industry in general. Um, The Indigenous Mapping Workshop is doing really wonderful work um, to increase the STEM capability of people working in Indigenous communities, remote areas, who probably wouldn't otherwise have the tools at their hands or, or know how to use them. So we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but first up, I just wanted to talk to each of you a little bit about your own journey in GIS and, and how your journey with mapping started. Usha, you were, I know you're born in New Zealand and now you live over here in Perth. Um, how did your, I guess, how did you end up on this path? Did it start from a young age for you? I guess science did. Uh, my dad was um, a maths major and was always very interested in showing us science experiments at home. And um, my earliest memory is going to the, the University of Auckland Open Days and watching people do experiments and touching things and figuring things out and talking to my dad about that kind of stuff which was really exciting. I didn't really realise that that kind of sparked an interest in science for me, but it kind of started from there, I think. And so you studied GIS at university or did you study something else? Um, yeah, so when I studied um, GIS, it was sort of an add-on to a science degree. So I did environmental science and geography and geology. How many years have you been working now as a GIS analyst? Just over 12 years. Wow, long time. Yeah, yeah. And Nat, you've been working in the industry, sorry, for a long time as well. Yes. How, how did you get started? You probably, I would imagine when you started as well, there was even less females in this space. Yes, at Curtin University, where I studied GIS, it was still part of the computer science school. So there wasn't very many women in there. And I started first after travelling, I came back to get a career or a trade 
and decided in my infinite wisdom that art school might lead me to that. And after a year of art school and being the only one hanging out to write essays, I realised I wasn't using enough of the analytical side of my brain. So I jumped from there straight into a science degree and at the very end found GIS. And I think it's it was very hard. I'd hardly ever used computers at that stage. So it was a very, very steep learning curve. There was only one textbook at the time, which we read cover to cover. And I think the challenge, I did learn that I like hard things. And this, the interaction between science and art is what has held me there for about 23 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then Marinda... You work for Winyama, like I mentioned before. Can you tell us a little bit about how your journey in mapping started for you? Did that start from a young age for you as well? Yeah, so I've got two older brothers and uh, the next one older than me, I used to love his atlas, his school atlas. So he's seven years older than me, so a nice age gap. So, yeah, when he finished school um, at the end of the year, bring home all his books, I was like, oh, I want that. Mm-hmm. Oh, can I have that? So that was one of the things, one of my prized possessions as a kid. And I guess the one thing that drew me to continue to look through this atlas was how complex of a story you can tell with a very simple image. Uh, to have no words but to be, still be able to portray such a complex story is quite amazing. And how has that impacted, I guess, your career as well, given the work that you're now doing with things like the Indigenous Mapping Workshop? Uh, A big part of uh, my journey, because I'm self-taught in GIS uh, through a government job that I had and just kind of fell into it and and picked up a few skills and really um, took it upon myself to dive into it some more and to just keep learning, Uh, I see that this can be beneficial to other Aboriginal people that may not necessarily have um, a traditional kind of educational experience like myself. Um, but still has those knowledge and capabilities to kind of pick these concepts up and, and be able to create a career out of it or, or um, you know, create a connection to something that has, for, for me as an Aboriginal person, um, has a very Aboriginal feel in the sense of it's, it's land-based and, and Aboriginal people are very, yeah, connected to that, to the land. Yeah, great. So first up, ladies, I just wanted to talk about, I guess, some of the realities of um, women working in STEM, given that it is the week of International Women's Day. I know we said we touch on the diversity piece in general. It shouldn't just be about women. Women, having women in this space is very important, we all think. But having diversity of views across many different areas is very important too. But just wanted to start out with some of the facts Um, So in a report called Advancing Women in STEM, which is available on industry.gov.au, was released in June 2019. They've actually put together some some figures and some stats. I'm going to just say some of them now for you. So we already know that visibility of women working in STEM careers is poor. They say only 28% of STEM academic writers featured in the conversation in 2017 were women, the conversation being the academic journal. Um, Some of the more damning statistics, though, women are earning less than their male counterparts in science, engineering and IT roles. The pay gap in science between men and women is 12.4%. And the other side of this as well is that um, in terms of uh, STEM education, particularly in the science space, which you all work in, 
that the rate of women graduating these university courses are not being reflected in employment rates. And that could be for a varying amount of reasons. There are a lot of different attributes. I'm kind of interested to know hearing these these stats, what some of your views are, what your experience has been. Busha, do you have any views on that? I was lucky enough for my first job um, right out of uni to I used to join an engineering consultancy, which is traditionally quite a male-heavy industry, um, and it was, um, but I was lucky enough to have a female um, boss and a very strong female boss, and um, she really showed, I think she was a great role model because she kind of showed us sort of how to represent ourselves within the industry, and I never really felt a particularly small fish in that kind of pond. The question of role models um, is a big one in this space. It's actually one of the main key factors they say that can encourage women into STEM careers. Nat, have you experienced or seen anything like this? Did you have a female role model coming into STEM or did you, what was your experience? Not really. I didn't really have female role models. And in fact, a lot of my career, I've been the only GIS person in a region. In fact, when I moved to Broome for seven years, I was the only GIS person in the whole Gimbley. And there was only about five of us across the whole of Northern Australia. So the majority of colleagues were men and there really wasn't that many women. But I have had a, quite a... Hmm, there's been a big discussion about the word feminist, but I've had a strong feminist backbone my entire life. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've always been prepared to stand up and be the first woman doing something. And Marinda, do any of those facts or things, you know, that I mentioned, do they resonate with you at all? Yeah, so um, having uh, self-taught, I didn't really see myself as uh, being in STEM as such, possibly until I started at Winyama and really started to kind of, um, we kind of move outside of government as well and, and you can embrace a little bit more within government. You're kind of within your silo. You're only working in that kind of small area where I've been able to expand that. And I'd say, um, especially over these last couple of months working with Nat, Nat is a great role model and a role oh, model for me. That's nice. For sure. <laughs> There's lots of thumbs up happening in the studio right now. <laughs> <laughs> she's thanking you or you no no she's paying me she's later. gonna pay you later <laughs> <laughs> love it um something Nat that you and I have spoken about before is this I think it's the scissor effect scissor graph scissor graph sorry not the effect it sounds like a horror movie so the, the <laughs> how does it work looks at the number of the gender balance of people graduating from uni and then the gender balance a little way down the track. So we know that more women graduate from uni in sciences and that number drops off quite quickly and then less men graduate. And then when we look at the management roles, the people who have advanced in their fields, there's more men than women. And so you get this crossover effect, thus the scissor. Why do they think that is? Do you think it's because women, like, you know, we... Is this perceived gender roles? Is it because we get married and we have to stay, you know, we stay home and we look after the kids, you know? I mean, Usha, you're a mum. I know that you and I have talked about this, but you've been able to work in very flexible, you know, working environments. You've got a really caring husband who does 50-50 of the work. What are your views on that? Um, I think um, I've had a chat to Nat about this and how 
some of these traditional views are in the sort of older generation who are retiring. And I think as uh, the younger generation's coming through the workforce, what happens at home is reflected in the workplace as well. So there's a bit more flexibility so that people can people can go to things outside of work and come back and attend to personal events or you know activities and then come back and actually focus on the work. And I think if your work, oh sorry, if your company gives you that kind of flexibility, you're more likely to put in um, more effort because there's a lot of mutual respect both ways. So. Mm. What role do you, I guess I want to throw this out to all of you to answer, but what role do you think men play in this scenario? And how important do you think it is to have men being the champions for women in this space? Because I think we, you know, women and are doing a lot to increase the the STEM capability and and sort of trying to entrench that in young girls at the moment, bring them up into, I guess, having the belief that they can go and pursue a career in this space. How important do you think it is to have to have the guys that you work with behind you as well? I think it's really important. Um, as it is, we all make up society, men, women all ethnicities, all the diversity that that is society. So if that's not represented at all levels of everything um, and everyone has buy-in to that, there is no push forward. Um, So everyone being a part of this is the only way we move forward in this space. And I think that right now some... Some men feel like they're in a precarious situation because they they feel like the push for equality is, you know, pushing one down while another one rises. And that's not that's not the plan. The plan is to bring everybody up, men, women, diverse thought to the same level. And you know, the the statement goes around about men if they're challenged on their position, they say, I got my position on merit. And that's absolutely right. But the piece that's missing is maybe the pond that they were fishing in to find that person didn't include different genders and diversity. And so it doesn't mean that they're not suitable for the job, but it means that if they were actually fishing in a bigger pond, there might be somebody else equally as good and so it is a really tricky conversation because some men not all some men feel quite threatened by this conversation and that's not the intent and that's why we have to have men on board men who don't feel threatened who see the importance absolute importance of gender diversity and diversity in thought in general because without it Companies, society, everything collapses because you get to a point, if you're always selecting a group of people that look like you, think like you, a situation will come along that you can't handle and neither can your cohort. Because you're all the same. Because you're all the same. And so if we diversify and bring in lots of diversity of thought, we won't hit those points of collapse. But it is, I think, right now is the difficult time because we still have a lot of men who have sat in privileged positions and not understood that privilege. And so when we're asking them to accept an equaling or a, a levelling, they feel like they're being oppressed. Yeah. And so we have to tread very carefully there with kick gloves 
to bring them along with us. And it's a much more difficult task. And I think the younger men coming through have broader minds, hopefully. Mm. <laughs> so that's an easier that's an easier sell. Yeah. I think with um, working at NGIS, for example, yeah, we do have a lot of men working at the company, but we've also got a good representation of um, or cross-section of women working across several of the different businesses. And uh, one, one thing I will say is that I, I do find all the guys in this team to be um, really welcoming and very encouraging and supportive. Yeah, uh, I've had nothing but support, especially as a, a young mother or a mother to a, a young girl. Um, it's really important to have that flexibility and also understanding because sometimes screaming into work five minutes before I have to jump into a meeting people sort of understand that I'm not kicking back and relaxing at home you know you just have a lot of things going on. I want to go back just for a sec as well to um, what you were saying that about the, the pool of applicants that a lot of organizations you know in you know when you're recruiting for a new role um, whether it's in GIS or any other um, sort of job role um, just removing that that bias out of it. Um, what kind of measures do you do you all encourage that companies taking this? I know that some companies will remove things like um, people's names from CVs, no photographs, um, nothing about their gender, and just strip everything back to the bare essentials. Would you encourage something like that? Do you think it's effective? I think one of the first steps is the the actual job description. Right, okay. And that, so it the, starts there. The unconscious bias that we all have, unless we do some training around that and can see it or get someone who has had training to look at the application and go, really, you're looking for a white surfy in his 30s. <laughs> and <laughs> if that's the first step and yeah. then I don't, I actually don't know about that. I think seeing... Um, I guess seeing other females in managerial roles makes it seem like normalises it a little bit. Um, I think right now when there are, there is an organisation or company with a lot of men at the top, it just seems, I think it what you were talking about with the pool, it just seems strange to have a female there. Um, but if it's a normal thing and there's females and males in the balance, then we can kind of grow in the direction. And that would also help with the unconscious bias of how panels work to select people and Mm -hmm. how job descriptions are written and, you know, who assesses, who gets through the cut to interview, all of those things. So I think that it's, you know, that's going to help a lot of things, isn't it? It's going to help gender representation, people from different cultural backgrounds, different belief systems, people with different sexual orientations as well. Interesting feedback because um, I think, I don't know if I've ever been across any business that's that's doing it and I've heard about people doing that, but I don't think I've ever worked in a business where this process happens. Just be interesting to see firsthand what, what some of the outcomes are with that. I controversially think that we should... Have you know? Often when we go for jobs, there's a score sheet that your panel is marking you down. Yeah, the matrix. The matrix, and I think that we should have a diversity score. Oh, okay. And so, if you and I are sitting the same, then the diversity score bumps you up. It means we're both equally suitable for the job, but it means diversity is really important. Mm-hmm. 
which leads me really nicely into what I want to talk about next, which was diversity in terms of culture. Marindra, I'd love to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing with Indigenous Mapping Workshop in conjunction with NAT. First of all, I think for our listeners, um, regular listeners would probably have heard about the Indigenous Mapping Workshop before because we've had Andrew on the podcast to talk about it. Um, Muka Apati from Digital Navigators in New Zealand, who's a Maori man who um, has come on to talk about his work in New Zealand in the mapping space and running his workshops there. But would you mind just maybe delving into it a little bit further? Why why you're doing it? Why Indigenous Mapping Workshop? And what I guess what the objective is? Because I think right now it's pretty obvious that, yes, we have a problem with female representation in STEM, but Australian Aboriginal people are barely even in it at all. So could you tell us a little about that? Yeah, so the main objective for IMW is obviously to empower Aboriginal people with mapping skills to better manage their own country. And I guess at a starting point, Aboriginal people don't see themselves very much as uh, scientists or um, they're quite technology adverse and, and, and it doesn't really kind of fit with culture. But for me personally, one of the main things was when I realised Aboriginal people have been observing everything around them for so long and that is the basic, that's the start of science. You observe something, you analyse the results, you change the variables, you get a different result, you it's record like all the, of that. It's almost like the way they, they think and the way they've been for thousands of years yeah. is intrin- intrinsically spatial anyway. Yeah, that's it. So I think... Providing a space, a safe cultural space where Aboriginal people can come, be amongst one another, uh, especially when you're talking about rangers uh, working on their own country and not necessarily having a chance to meet other rangers who are doing exactly the same work on similar country um, with similar problems or similar uh, issues they need to solve. Um, Giving them that space to come and have those like-minded conversations as well as uh, in some cases, it's really giving them the confidence with the knowledge that they already have. But in other cases, it's actually building those entry-level skills in GIS um, that they can take home and then apply to their range of program, their language mapping, uh, native title processes that they may be doing. So it's about the rise of, I guess, the development of those skills as well. I know you're both working on the curriculum, which, as you just mentioned at the moment, still pretty entry level because you're only in your third year. Yeah. Coming up on the third year, I believe. Yes. Um, So Sydney in 2018, Perth 2019, and now Melbourne in 2020 in July. Um, What's, I guess, the ultimate goal? So you're putting together the curriculum and, and what people will learn, but what's the dream? You know, we, we sit around this table in five or six years from now and we ha- do an all female Aboriginal podcast. Is that the what you guys would like to see happen here? Do you have more Aboriginal women and men in this space yeah. doing these jobs? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's also generally our IMW participants that are living remote don't have opportunities to go to university. They don't have a lot of training opportunities within the organisations they work for or out on country. So ideally, you would think that maybe some of these participants would get the opportunity to to go to university after going through the program at IMW and be inspired to build on the knowledge that they've gained and go through possibly a mainstream process and and have that confidence that they'll they'll succeed. How has it been putting together the the training material, Nat? 
for the Indigenous Mapping Workshop with Marinda. It's really so interesting to just, I've, I've been to two Indigenous Mapping Workshops as a participant and to sit on this side and pull it together and, and dream about the path that we're building for people to get from no mapping skills to a place where they can make maps for reports and share knowledge about country with people or report on, you know, rangers get paid to do jobs from different government agencies to be able to use maps to report back on that. And just with a different, with a science cap on, I see a big picture on this as well in that, you know, we have this sense that scientists have a piece of paper and I think that's not necessarily true, as Miranda said before, And I think the mapping helps both inside Aboriginal culture and outside understand the knowledge, the Indigenous knowledge that's held there, sharing, you know, however much you want or don't want, but really pushing this idea that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people really know a lot about how to manage this country Mm -hmm. and they know a lot about plants and animals and the environment and... That's what we call science and bringing those two knowledge systems together and recognising this Indigenous knowledge as a science I think is a, you know, my dream outcome of some of this. Yeah, I was. you've just made me think of something which is that Marinda wrote an article for Winyama, um, Aboriginal Science Meets Western Science, which was wildly popular by the way, just if I never told you that. Very, very popular blog. <laughs> that's good um, to hear. But that is, you know, we're starting to see the fusion of that. And I think that's really important that, you know, we have Western science appreciating exactly what Marinda was saying before, that Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people, the way that they, they think, the way that they manage their lands and waters has always been intrinsically spatial. They didn't have the tools that we have, the technology we have. But now what we're seeing is a convergence of the two. So we've got the way Aboriginal people manage all of their lands. And now you guys are bringing together that with the technology, which is really special. Something I was speaking to Andrew about in terms of diversity and leadership was that a lot of the people who are attending the workshop are rangers and they are entry level. But I guess that, you know, they could end up fulfilling roles in their organisations. Um, so we've got, you know, native title organisations, land councils, you know, organisations that are quite big that are managing several Indigenous ranger groups around Australia where those head ranger roles are being filled by people who are not Aboriginal, that the idea is that maybe they can one day be those Aboriginal people with the skills that they're learning at the workshop. Yeah, that's exactly it. So um, uh, without any numbers, we do know that that level is predominantly white people and they're doing those reporting aspects of the role, not necessarily the data collection on country work, um, utilising, you know, where the rangers are actually utilising their ecological knowledge. So, yeah, giving them the power to then go back into the office and upload that information, analyse it, report on it and, you know, elevate themselves through, through that corporation is ideal. And I think that something important to note is that I don't think this is about pushing white Australian people 
or not as they could, sometimes yeah. they're actually from other countries I've noticed with some of the applications for the workshop it's not about pushing those people out of the roles it's just about enabling and raising those other aboriginal people who are out doing the data collection up and just giving them the chance yep. yeah that's it um you know generally speaking those ranger coordinators are from elsewhere they may have just particularly gone to that area and they're all for great that people job. They're all yeah, great they people. Are great yeah. people. Um, but we're talking about empowering people that are from that country, living on that country. And when you do that, you actually create jobs underneath for the for the next mob coming up. And and that's what it's about. It's creating those pathways and ensuring that more Aboriginal people are employed on country because that is important to Aboriginal people. Yep. Recently, a few weeks ago, I made a map of Aboriginal lands across Australia. So that includes native title. Indigenous land use agreements, IPAs, Indigenous, Indigenous protected areas, and put them all together and did the sums. And that Aboriginal lands are now 50% of the Australian landmass. And so Aboriginal people are custodians for 50% of the land of Australia. So it's absolutely right. Legally custodians for 50% of the land. Yeah, sorry. So Legal. It's, it's okay. Yeah, so traditionally we're custodians no, of the whole that's lot. Right. But, you know. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, so it's right that that Aboriginal people should be at the top of the pile managing country. I think that there are probably a lot of people we talk about, I guess, differences in opinion, people from other generations who maybe don't understand where the younger generations are coming from when it when we talk about diversity in leadership positions and why it's important. I guess I call it the so what factor. It's like, oh yeah, well, if women want to be in STEM or if Aboriginal people want to be in STEM, well, they can do it. Sometimes we know now it's actually not that easy, but you you do come across people. That's the reality of it. I haven't really quite grasped yet the value that a difference in diversity within an organisation can have. Speaking about women in particular, what, what kind of things do you think in your, from your point of view that women bring to the table that help just make for a better working environment? Well, articles, recent articles have been written and they're looking at you know, this old idea that for business, the business world in particular, that it's really ruthless, it's dog-eat-dog and that for a woman... To get into that position, she had to be really masculine in her approach. She had to take on that really hard competitive edge and be really ruthless. Mm-hmm. And now as things are starting to change and there's more women on boards and there's more women CEOs and enough to make a difference now, we're finding that actually compassion and collectiveness, collaboration are just as important for the in terms of success of these companies. So when women are being women and being collaborative and compassionate, their companies are just as successful. So we don't need to be take on those really masculine roles These as ball women. breakers. We can be, <laughs> you know, our nurturing, Soccer. compassionate collaborative selves. I heard a term early on in my career, emotional intelligence. And I think that's something that women have in droves. <laughs> um, and that's what we bring um, to the table for sure. I think that I've definitely worked with female colleagues before 
who I, you know, really look up to and I still do. They're wonderful people. I'm not I'm not from a GIS STEM background, as you all know, but but I have worked with those women who have, I guess, broken the glass ceiling in previous jobs um, and have made their way to the top, who are that hard exterior, that very manly kind of um, personality. And I remember so many times where I wanted them to just be a bit softer, but it just goes to show you how, I guess we feel like we need to adapt sometimes and that it's kind of nice, you know, you do realise that as you get older, it's okay to be successful and to be unapologetically yourself. And now because those women who did step into those roles, who could step into those roles emotionally, they led the way. And so they, you know, extended the hand to us, the rest of us, and pulled us up. So they were the first and often the only ones At the coalface. And, you know, just getting one is a step. They say getting one woman in a position is... Not token, but it's a step. Getting two, you know, they can at least support each other. Getting three, they can start to move and really get things going. And so those women that we've come across in our lives really hard, they have played such a great and important part in getting more women up at that top level. So now we can be, now there's not the expectation that we have to be so competitive and Mm -hmm. ruthless. Something I think that women bring to the table, which I think is very special, and I'm not saying men aren't this way too because I've met lots of of men who are risk-averse. And it's something that gets spoken about a lot when it comes to having women in the workforce, women on boards in particular. Women are are too risk-averse was something that I saw in a report from 2016 from the Australian Institute of Company Directors. They did a report where they they canvassed all these, um, these boards across Australia and were challenging people about why they didn't have women in their boards. And they came up with these like responses, which they then turned into a video. I'll actually link it. Um, in the podcast notes for anyone who's interested in seeing it, that, you know, one of the comments was women are too risk averse. It's actually not the first time I've come across it, but I actually love that women are risk averse. I think it's a positive. I think it's great. I think if you have too many people wanting to jump off a cliff, then, um, and see what happens. Like I said, I've had male colleagues as well who are, who are risk averse. I do think that women, you know, just it's, I think it's just more in our nature to be a bit more cautious about things and go into things not thinking yeah I'm going to succeed I'm going to get this this is going to work it's like well what if it doesn't (laughs) what if it doesn't work Um, and I don't think we're afraid to to point out things like we're not too proud to point out where we think there might be failings or where we think there could be um, something that's incorrect but that's that's just what I think and again I think that comes back to that diversity of thought as well emotional Mm. intelligence well (laughs) yes a male may see that as risk adverse but maybe we are contemplating more things than they are as a in in the situation mm-hmm. and that's why we become more risk adverse bring, in in their eyes yeah bring a more holistic view yeah we're assessing more things the picture is bigger you know they say that a woman's brain is like a ball of wire and we're thinking about a million and one things at one time and it, I, I saw this really funny video it was like a man's brain is um like a box it was a scientist I can't remember his name now, but a man's brain is like a box and he goes into one box at each time. And I feel unfair because it's not all guys. Um, But I will speak on behalf of my fiance 
and he <laughs> is like a one box at a time person. But we, we do have this beautiful knack of being able to be able to think of a million things at once. And I think you're right, I th- Miranda. I think that we just, it's like we're already 10 steps ahead of things. That's, you know, that's just what I think. But anyway. But the beauty of diversity is that um, I've recently done a personality test. Oh. And I've done a similar test in the past. And so I'm very high on analytical skills, creative skills and social skills. Mm -hmm. And where I fall down is uh, the bookkeeper, which is risk averse. Oh, interesting. I take more risks and I'm more creative. And so that's just the nature of diversity, I think. It is. Yeah. I wouldn't put myself in a risk-averse box. It's interesting then why that, that, that comes up as a, a comment about females because it's in a lot of reports. You know, women are very risk-averse, you know. People and or men on boards don't like that. It's just, you know, it's, it's interesting because you're right. It's not like all women are this way. Like I was saying, I know lots of men who are risk averse. It's just like these kind of conclusions that we're coming to. Like, how does that happen? Maybe it's because there's so few women at that position. There's only a narrow group, personality types, that actually can make it through as the first cohort through. Whereas men, there's so many men that they've actually got greater diversity of personality Mm. up at that Mm. level. I think also because they're comfortable in that space as well. They've been there forever. Yes. And they're supported by their... They make those risks. Yeah, they're definitely Um, supported by their colleagues that look the same as them as well. You you have confidence when you look around the room and you see similar like people to you. That's right, whereas females are new to that that space and they might be risk averse because they don't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers. They might be the only woman in the room. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So, so what can we do then to bring more women into the room? A question I've got for all of you is about um, how do we get more young girls interested in pursuing STEM careers? Empowerment um, and um, leading by example um, in the workplace. Um, I definitely, um, um, I'm friend. I try to be friends with most people, but. Um, I align myself with other females and, you know, try and um, create a relationship with other women and make it a safe environment um, for us to push all of us up or push each other up, you know, towards that kind of space. And how about with, like, young, young children? Young girls, you've got a daughter? Yeah. Gorgeous girl. Um, I guess removing gender from conversations with children. So, um, and I'm definitely guilty of it, um, but I know when I was growing up, you, with girls, they're always told that they're cute and beautiful and their hair and and then there's comments about their dresses and things like that. Um, Whereas boys, people, when they speak to boys, they tend to get asked about their, I mean, they, they also probably do get commented on their looks, but it's more about what they're doing and how they're playing and, um, an interaction of how things work. And uh, I think it's just changing changing the narrative for the younger generation so they're not expected, women aren't expected to, to show up to be the most beautiful, but also to bring something to the table and same, and yeah. I think an example of um, something you've said before to me is um, when a little boy's playing with a truck, they'll be asked, you know, how does that truck work? Yes. Can you tell me what it does? Yeah. Whereas like with little girls, it could be like, oh, that's such a pretty dress you're wearing. And it's like, I guess the, there's not a lot of depth 
yes. the way we talk to our young girls. That's interesting, interesting point of view. What about initiatives that exist now, which will enable women, grown women working in this space to go even further? That's my opening for Homeward Bound. <laughs> now, Homeward Bound is a women in science leadership initiative and it's about really broadening that group of people in the world right now who are making all the decisions, especially those decisions about our environment, about how long we can sustain fossil fuels, how much of the reef we dig up, how much sand we take, all of those decisions. Internationally, they're made by a very homogenous group. And so Homeward Bound is training up 100 women a year for 10 years to create a network of a 1,000 women in science, break into those decisions and be there at all levels, policy to science to all levels of education and science and STEM to get in there and really push for a different view and a different opinion and a science-based, research-based opinion. And so Homeward Bound was started by a woman in Sydney who used to be a businesswoman and she was looking around and for 20 or 30 years we've had these talks about the environment and global warming and climate change and she thought nothing has happened, nothing has changed. How can we possibly change it? And she said change the decision makers. So that's what it's all about. Building this network of a 1,000 women in STEM over 10 years and building them by taking each group for a year through a leadership visualisation and strategy-making program, which culminates in a three-week intense workshop on a boat floating around Antarctica. And you're going. I'm going this year. <laughs> so I'm in the fifth year and... They call it HB5, don't they? It's like yep. HB5, HB6. Yeah. It's so, the boat. Uh, applications for Homeward Bound for next year have just opened. And so all the women in this room I'm looking at, <laughs> uh, to apply, you have to do a two-minute pitch and really what they're looking for is a desire to change those decision makers and a love for the environment and a horror at the things that are happening that we can't change and a great desire to get in there as one of the decision makers to change it doesn't mean you have to be a politician decisions happen at all levels and a really the biggest thing is creating a collaborative sustainable network to look after the planet into the future so it's not just one group with agenda that we don't know about but really getting many, we're pushing for women because there's just not enough women there. But from inside Homeward Bound, I'm really pushing for greater diversity. And in fact, little creatures in Fremantle, the brewery, have just uh, created a beer called International Women's Day Ale. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I'm going to have some of that. And <laughs> they, all of the proceeds from that go to pay for one woman to go to Homeward Bound. Oh. She's from Kenya. 
And so that's her scholarship. I just got goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> Good that's on really you, little cool. creatures. Well, we are going to put in the podcast notes on the NGIS website. So anyone that's listening, if you wanted to hear more about pretty much anything we've talked about on the podcast where we've said we will include links, you just go to the NGIS website, uh, to the newsroom section, there is a drop down, it's uh, podcasts. And each of the episodes are listed there. And we'll put all the links um, to any resources supporting materials or anything we've talked about, including the Homeward Bound um, website where you can apply. And we do encourage um, any female GIS listeners um, who might feel up to the task um, of doing the fundraising and taking part in that initiative to please go there and do it. Um, I will have Nat back on the podcast when she gets back from Antarctica so that we can hear all about it and all the cool stuff that you got to do. Uh, ladies, I think I'll leave it there for today. Um, just want to say a huge thank you from NGIS for being on the podcast. Usha, thanks so much for being here. I know it's your day off and that you're meant to be spending time with your little girl right now, but I do appreciate you coming in. That's right. She's being spoiled out there. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Nat, thank you um, very much. Marinda, thank you. And I guess as well, um, just a massive hats off to both of you for all the great work that you're doing with IMW. I'm really excited to see how it turns out. I would like in the next five years, like I said, to have a group of Indigenous female podcast participants sitting around here with Marinda and we can reflect and talk about that. That would be really cool. I just want to wrap up um, today's podcast with a little bit of a shout out um, to the NGIS group. Uh, ladies that work here. I've got Marinda and Usha in the room here with us. Um, but the NGIS group is uh, made up of NGIS Lively, EO Data Science, Winyama, and then within Winyama, we've got the Indigenous Mapping Workshop. And across those five brands, we have some pretty amazing ladies working behind the scenes, not just in GIS or in science, but in all sorts of ways. So I just want to shout out to them in no particular order whatsoever. We've got Linda, Jamie, Joy, Yuki, Crystal, Amy, Lisa, Taylor, Kathy, Alexis D and Shiv. Um, Alexis D and Shiv are in our Sydney office. Um, so massive hats off to, to you wonderful ladies. It is an absolute pleasure to work alongside all of you. And uh, I know all the guys in our company would say the same. So thank you all very much for listening to this week's Location Matters podcast. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcast, Spotify or Stitcher. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.